continuing a series we started last week called The End Times. Uh, you might call it The Last Days on Earth. I mean, you know, at some point in time in the future, tomorrow will not be like today. How many know at one point in time, life as we know it on this earth will change? Now, uh, I want to show you a little picture. It's one of my favorite websites. It, it popped up Friday. This is the, the Drudge Report, one of the largest conservative sites in the world. And you see there's a picture of a locust. In case you didn't know it, there are locust swarms. They believe they could expand in the coming months to cover a 400-square-mile area. They'll just go through an area and devastate it. Locusts were a type of plague in the Bible, but here it says virus panic. That's the uh, 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 coronavirus and locust plague sparked Bible apocalypse fears. Now, that's not a, a, a magazine that you, a tabloid you'd find in the grocery store. That's a conservative website that are, is talking about what other people are talking about. People are wondering about calamities, how far they go. Because there is one distinctive of the end of the world, as the Bible would speak of it in the book of Revelation, is there is calamity that's going to befall this earth. An earth that has turned her back on the living God will see what life can be like without him. Uh, the next two weeks, we're going to talk about the book of Revelation. But today, I want to stay with what Jesus said about the last days. Uh, I'm going to review uh, a little more fully than I normally do, but Mark chapter 13 there's three chapters in the New Testament, Mark 13, Matthew 24, and Luke 21 that are almost verbatim uh, in, in terms of Jesus' description of end-time events. Uh, Mark 13, verse 3, uh, Jesus is sitting on the Mount of Olives. Peter, James, and John ask him privately, tell us when. Yes, when I do this, I want you to say the next word. How about that? Tell us when will these things be and what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished. That's what people want to know. When's it going to happen and what's the world going to look like? And basically in this chapter, Jesus, as I summarized, talked about two things. He predicted the future, but perhaps more important for us, he gave us admonitions on how to live in the last days. Jesus predicted things like the destruction of the Jerusalem temple. Historians tell us it literally happened in AD 70. Jesus talked about wars and famines. He likened them to birth pains of a woman before the baby would come and give birth. Uh, he talked about persecution and hatred of followers of Jesus Christ. As you look around the world today, it is incredible. The, the most persecuted uh, religion in the world today is Christianity. Some 260 million believers face persecution every day of their life. And even in America, thankfully our president has done more for religious freedom in America. Our constitutional first uh, right in the Bill of Rights, he's done more than any president in my memory to protect and preserve these rights. But it's coming in the days ahead. There will be hatred of followers of Christ. An interesting phrase, Jesus called it the abomination of desolation. It was the defilement of the Jewish temple that would cause the temple to be abandoned. Jesus, and it would be fulfilled in the book of Revelation. It harkened back to the book of Daniel. Uh, the great tribulation, false Christs and false prophets. And this is interesting. The sun and the moon will go dark and stars will fall from the sky, according to Jesus. And then the coming of the Lord will climax it, the second coming of Christ. 
to which angels will go around the, the globe and gather his believers around the globe. Well, that's kind of a, not necessarily a sequence, but that is a prediction of end time events. As far as admonitions in Mark 13, Jesus, the first thing Jesus said was don't be deceived. Don't be tricked. Don't be led astray. Be on your guard against the false Christ, against the false prophet. Uh, the one thing he told us to do, what I think is the hinge of the entire chapter, is Jesus said this gospel is going to be preached in the entire world and then the end will come. That's why we do missions trips. Jesus told us not only to reach our local cities, but he told us to reach the world. That's why when we go, we try to go to places not just where the gospel is preached regularly, but we try to go to places that have minimal gospel influence. That's why we, when we support apostolic works, we're looking for works around the globe that are reaching unreached, uh, unreached people. Very comforting thing, Jesus said, when you're being persecuted, you'll stand before government officials. But Jesus said, don't worry because the Holy Spirit will give you what to say in that very hour. How I many know oh, that's a good thing? And then, of course, uh, he told us to endure to the end. The last days will be hard days, difficult days. People will feel like quitting. People will pray, and their prayers will perhaps not be answered. They'll wonder where God is. So Jesus said, in the middle of this, you endure. Endure, hang on, don't quit. To the end of your life or to the end of life on earth. And lastly, he talked about keep awake and be alert. I'll read this scripture before we begin today. Concerning the day or the hour of Christ's coming, no one knows, not even angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. Now look, verse 33, I want you to say this with me. Be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. So this is where we left off last week. Today I want to continue on this foundation, not looking so much as the specific events, but what Jesus said about how we should live life on this earth. I want to begin, I'll paint a picture from not only the words of Jesus, but from Paul and Peter about what life would be like on planet earth when Jesus came. Then we'll talk about a parable Jesus gave about a challenge to us to use our time, our talent, our treasure, our resources, and our influence Use these things not just to have a better, funner life, but use them to serve the Lord and impact people. I'll share with you the words of Jesus, a prediction that the way that we treat people in need on this earth will determine what happens to us in eternity. And lastly, the promise of a literal bodily resurrection of every person that's ever lived on the planet. So let's begin today. Jesus and the last days, part two. And let's see what he predicted the world would be like when he comes again. Luke chapter 17 is where we begin, verse 26, and I want you to say this with me. Jesus said, when, not if, but when Jesus, the Son of Man, returns to earth, it's going to be like it was in Noah's day. I want you to think about the days of Noah. Early in the book of Genesis, the Bible says Noah was the only righteous person on the earth. There was evil and wickedness. Violence covered the earth. There was evil in the heart of every person. Notice verse 27. In those days, the people enjoyed banquets, parties, and weddings right up to the time Noah entered his boat and the flood came and destroyed them all. It, is a, it was a picture of judgment in the ancient days, but what I want you to see is people were not prepared. They were not expecting it. They were not ready. Uh, do you know it took Noah approximately 100 years to build this ark? It was a huge complex. Think of a football field. Think of not having power tools. Think of not having forklifts. It took almost 100 years to build it. 
And Noah would go and he would tell people about the coming judgment of God and people totally ignored him. I want you to think about this fact, friend. There were two types of people, or if I could say, two lives. Noah lived his life obeying God while most people ignored God. Most people had no concern about God. Noah would preach this 100-year period of time. They would laugh at him. I mean, after all, he was a crazy man. He was building a ship in the middle of the land. It was not near water. And it, the Bible says it had never rained on the earth. The earth was watered by a giant mist cloud. I think that's when the dinosaurs prospered on the earth. There were no UV rays that would penetrate through this mist cloud. It was like a giant greenhouse. So what a stupid thing to listen to some man building a ship in the middle of the, of the desert, as it were, that one day it was going to rain and they didn't know what rain was. But listen, Noah obeyed God. Most people didn't. Noah lived, now hear me, with eternity in mind. Noah had a future focus for his life. Most of the rest of the people just live for the day. And tragically, they were judged because of their sin. But Noah was spared because he did what God asked of him. Uh, Second Timothy, if I can read about the life of, of uh, what Timothy, uh, Paul told Timothy rather, what it was going to be like in the last days. And I want to read a paragraph from the Bible. And I want you to think about modern America today. Think about the headlines Paul said, you should know this, Timothy, that in the last days will be very difficult times. Our faith will be tested. For in these days, people will love only themselves and their money. They'll be boastful and proud. To be prideful suggests that I don't need God. I don't need anybody. I can make it on my own. They'll scoff at God. The mere mention of God, I, even articles that I read today, when, when most of which what you read in the secular press, when they allude to the Bible or anything about Jesus, it's in a demeaning way. It's in a it's in a a, a, a superior way. The secularists make no pl uh, place in their mind for God. They scoff at God. Disobedient to parents. If you happen to watch any modern te television shows about family and children, the children are always the smartest. Uh, the parents are the dumb ones, especially the daddy ungrateful. We live in a world today where we are taught that we are owed things. We're not grateful. How many people do you see that actually pray over a meal somewhere? You know, the purpose for praying over our meal is not to pray that, you know, the, uh, uh, the bacteria would not be there to make us sick. We pray to say thank you to God. But how little thankfulness do you see? Uh, they will consider nothing sacred. The only religion on the planet earth today that is free game to be targeted, it's not the Muslims. You even hint at something about the Muslim faith and you'll be attacked with violence. But Christianity, open game. You see, it's about God. They'll slander others. Think of social media. They'll have no self-control. They'll do whatever they want to do. I read the other day there was someone in the, just a young man driving a car. He saw a, uh, uh, one of our political parties was recruiting voters and it, angrily he just drove his car into the tent simply because he hated the people and what they represented. They'll be cruel and they'll hate what is good. I'm not a perfect person, but I'm a good person. By that I mean I care for people. I, I know the difference between right and wrong. And I can't understand why there's so much hatred when people simply want to help people and do good. Well, this is where it comes from. They'll love pressure rather than God. Think of this, verse 5. They'll act religious but reject the power that can make them godly. 
Think of the politician that talks about going to church but then votes on everything that is against the Bible. Let's go back to the words of Jesus. Again, we're describing the world before he comes. Verse 28, Jesus said this after he talked about Noah. Then he said, the world will be as it was in the days of Lot. Now think about Lot. Think about Sodom and Gomorrah. The world was described, or that part of the world is a very sexually immoral place. A world that was filled with violence. It was filled with hatred. Uh, rape was common. Uh, and the world would be like that. Uh, actually, when God told Abraham that he would destroy the place, uh, Abraham went from 50 to 10. Can you find that many people and not destroy it? And God said, I won't destroy it. And he couldn't even find 10 righteous people. The only guy he found was Lot. Lot took his wife and his two daughters. People went about their daily business. Eating, drinking, buying, selling. Farming, building, enjoying the daffodils that are coming up this time of the year, enjoying the last of a few uh, fire in the fireplace before it gets warm, uh, hoping to get a raise at work, uh, getting the fishing gear out, getting ready for turkey hunting. These are not bad things. It's just a way of saying people were ignoring what was about to happen. Verse 29, until the morning uh, a lot left Sodom, and then fire and burning sulfur rained down from heaven and destroyed them all. Now you say, well, preacher, that's just the Bible. I mean, come on. That's just a, a fairy tale, isn't it? Well, I thought you might ask that. So I asked the wisdom of Siri yesterday, just before church. I said, Siri, is there any archaeological evidence that Sodom was destroyed like the Bible talked about or something similar? And up pops an article from Forbes. It says, new science suggests the biblical city of Sodom was smote by an exploding meteor. Now, the Bible tells us fire and brimstone rained down from heaven. I'll take the meteor. It's okay. It says, new research finds that a powerful airburst from a meteor colliding with the atmosphere... Again, if you don't believe in God, you wouldn't believe that God could just send fire from heaven. There has to be a natural explanation to the secularist. But notice what it said, uh, that it might have wiped out this Bronze Age civilization along the north side of the Dead Sea 3,700 years ago. Many believe the same place was once known as Sodom. Archaeologist uh, Philip Sylvia uh, from in Albuquerque has been working with a team of people there for 13 years. They've taken samples from the site and it shows an extremely hot explosive event leveled an area almost 200 square miles, uh, a, a circular plain in the north of the Dead Sea. The Bible didn't just say God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. It destroyed the cities on the plain. And you could, we could keep reading, but basically, in a nutshell... The Bible records the historical event. We have modern-day archaeologists. This was in December 2018. Modern-day archaeologists are saying, something happened here. This land was uninhabitable for over 600 years because of this uh, uh, event that fire came down, whatever happened to it. And now you have Jesus saying, it's going to happen again. We're belittled as Christians sometimes. We're called uh, simple-minded it would seem to me that we're the smart ones. If the Bible says it and history verifies it, come on now, science and the archaeologists confirm it, and the same Bible predicts it's going to happen again. I wonder who the smart one is on that one. I'm preaching a little better than you're amening this morning. Now look at the rest of this. Verse 32. Remember what happened to Lot's wife. 
Here's the picture. Lot is leaving the city. He has his wife and his two daughters by his hand. But his wife looked back. The Bible says she became a pillar of salt. And then this verse, interesting. It says, if you cling to your life, you'll lose it. And if you let your life go, you'll save it. What does that mean about Lot's wife? Lot's wife, when she looked back, what she was looking back at was not just the fireworks. She was looking back at a lifestyle that she preferred over the lifestyle Lot was taking her to. And in her heart, she was leaving Sodom uh, physically, but in her heart, she was drawn to it, and it, it pulled her life back into it. This is why as a Christian today, I want to turn my back on the things of the world. Listen, not the people of the world. I'm to love them, but I'm to turn my back on its values. I'm to turn my back on its actions, on its attitudes that are, that are ungodly. Uh, uh, let me read you from another of the apostles from Peter. Simon Peter said this, 2 Peter 2.5. He says, if God did not spare the ancient world when he brought the flood on its ungodly people, but he protected Noah, a preacher of righteousness. Well, how I many that's what we're supposed to be? We're supposed to be light in a dark world. We're supposed to be bringing the love of God to people. We're supposed to be telling them about the Savior, just like Noah did. And he's going to go on to say, God protected Noah and he'll protect us. And then he goes to Lot, verse 6, if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah by burning them to ashes. And God made an example of what's going to happen to the ungodly, to those that reject Christ. If he rescued uh, Lot, a righteous man, listen to this, Lot was righteous in a place that was not. Lot was distressed by the depraved conduct of the lawless. I want you to think about the Super Bowl halftime show, and I'm going to come back to it. For that righteous man lived among them day after day, was tormented in his righteous soul by the lawless deeds he saw and heard. I wonder if I'm tormented. I wonder if I'm even bothered. During the Super Bowl, my mother-in-law, elderly, she lives in California. They were rooting for the 49ers. She has a bit of dementia. And when she was watching the Super Bowl halftime show, the pole dancers, the two ladies that were their performers bending over and putting their rear in the front of the TV, okay, seductive dancing, her response was, oh my Lord. Even a lady with dementia knew that something is wrong here. When you are taking a beautiful experience that God created to be shared between a man and a woman in, in an intimate private setting, and you're flaunting it to the world, and you're telling your innocent children that are watching it that this is okay to dance this way, to behave this way, and act this way. And we wondered why pornographers become so violent. We wonder why there's so much child abuse in America because this type of pornography pulls people. Listen, it's like we're killing ourselves, and we don't even know it. Well, but my question is, does it bother us? Or do I just go along with the entertainment of the world? Now listen, I've never seen anything as choreographed as well as something like that. I can't imagine how they could get that many people on and off stage flawlessly in just a few minutes. But am I able to discern and pull away from the immorality, the worldliness, the carnality, the shame? Does it cause me to bow my head and pray for people when I see it, when I hear it? Does it cause me to turn the TV off or do I just enjoy it? See, this is a question, and I don't say it in any way condemning, but rather to tell you that God's ways are not like the world's ways. 
And, and the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed for their immorality. And Lot's wife turned around because she wanted it. It's tight, but it's right now. Come on now. Look at Matthew 25. Let's go to the next one. This will be a little better, okay? This is a parable Jesus told. And in this parable, Jesus told us... Now, this is amazing. I, I can begin to do, start doing things this week that's going to impact me in a positive way in eternity. Jesus said this, what we do with our abilities, our time, our resources, and our influence will determine our future reward or punishment. In other words, one day we're going to stand before God and he's going to judge our lives. Now, in a parable, now this is Matthew 25. Remember I told you Matthew 24 is just like Mark 13. He told this entire lengthy article about the last days, and then he starts telling parables and predictions and stories. Well, this is a parable. Now, a parable takes something that happens in the natural world, and it draws a spiritual parallel. Matthew 25, verse 14. Again, the kingdom of heaven can be illustrated by the story of a man going on a long trip. He called together his servants and entrusted his money to them while he was gone. So, who is the man in this parable? It's Jesus. The long trip he's going on is when he went to heaven uh, after the resurrection. He called together his servants. Who's his servants? It's us, yeah. And he entrusted his money to them. Now, I suggest money or talents, it's called the parable of the talents, was not just money, but it is our resources, our money, our time, our talent, our abilities, all that God has given us, he's entrusted to us to serve him. Well, here's what happens. Verse 15, he gives these five bags of silver to one, he gives two bags to another, and one person gets one bag of silver. Uh, the servant who received five bags earned five more. Same thing with the guy with two. But now look at verse 18. This is pivotal. The servant who received the one bag of silver, what did he do? Say it again. He dug a hole. He hid it, his master's money. This is a picture of someone that wastes what God gives them. It's a picture of someone that spends all they have on themselves, that is consumed by pleasure and ignores the opportunity and needs of other people. Now look at verse 19. After a long time, the master returned from his trip. This is Jesus coming back to the earth. Now this next phrase is the most powerful in the story. Now hear this. He called them to do what? Give an account. In other words, one day you and I are going to stand before God and God's going to say, what did you do with what I gave you? What did you do with the time, the talent, the treasure, the influence, the platform that I built for your life? He'll take the famous people, look at the famous people of the earth, the Elvis Presleys, the Michael Jacksons, the, you know, the, uh, uh, the gal, what was her name, uh, Rapinoe or something that was the head soccer lady, you know, when American won the, won the uh, women's soccer deal. And people that are MVPs and they have a platform that's built and then they can either be a Tim Tebow and point people to Jesus or they can take a political agenda or they can just make more money from Nike over it. Here's the question, but we're going to give an account to God. Verse 20, this is the good one. The servant who got five bags of silver came forward with five more. And Jesus said this. And this is what I want Jesus to say to you. This is what I want Jesus to say to me. He said, well done, good and faithful servant. Serve the Lord. You've been faithful in handling a small amount. Now, this is big. I'm going to give you many more responsibilities. I believe this is a picture of heaven Saying in heaven, you're not just going to sit on a cloud and play harps and tambourines. 
I'll have rhythm at that day if that's the case. But you're not just going to do that and have fun. There's going to be something to do in heaven. God's going to give us greater responsibility. In other words, he's rewarding us for faithful service. But here's the downer. Look at verse 24. The servant with one bag of silver. Now, that doesn't imply he, he didn't have a lot. He could, he could have been a multimillionaire. He could, have had, you know, he could have had tremendous political influence. But the issue is that Jesus only expected just a little bit, and he didn't even get that. The man said, I was afraid I'd lose your money. And the key thing is this, I hid it. And what the master said is so troubling to me. He said, you wicked and lazy servant. Your selfishness is what was wicked. Your laziness was evidence the fact that you just cared only about yourself. Take the money from this servant. Now, this is interesting, too. We hear a lot today in America about redistribution of wealth. And the way we hear it, it's from either a socialist or a communist point of view, which basically says those that have a lot to give it to those that don't have much. And what it does to a society is it makes everybody equally poor. That's why it doesn't work. And that's what you hear. But the Bible has something totally opposite. It says, again, the guy that buried the one bag, Jesus said, take, the, take his money, take his one bag, and give it to the one with ten bags of silver. To those who use well what they're given, even more will be given. See, and this is not just, you know, you don't have to just be Linnell and take people to the jungle of, of Africa. How about, how about the person who uh, uh, just loves to cook and makes it a point every time they hear somebody's in the hospital... Or, uh, uh, or they bring them something to eat. Or how about a single mom that's doing everything she knows how to do, working two jobs with two kids, just jumbling, jumbling, jumbling. How about somebody that just goes over and helps do her laundry one day or touches up her house, come on, or makes a meal for them to have because mom had time, time to do it. See, this is loving people. This is caring about people. This is not just some super spiritual thing that I have to do on a Sunday or in the context of what we call church. This is bringing the love of God wherever we go to people because we love God and because we love them. And Jesus said it's going to be rewarded uh, if we use it well. But I wish I didn't have to read these next verses. But to those who do nothing, even what little they have will be taken away. And it gets worse. Throw this useless servant into outer darkness. To speaking of hell, there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's not a pretty situation. But again, Jesus talked about the last days and then he said, look people at what you're doing with your life. Your time, your talent, your treasure, your resources. You say, well, I don't have much money. You don't have to have just a lot of money. If all you have is a dollar, put it in that globe and when that globe gets $1,000, we'll buy a Bible somewhere around the world. If all you have is a quarter, get one of those little Haiti cans right there. There's smaller ones around the church. Put your change in it, bring it to church, and we send it to Haiti to feed uh, poor kids, and they'll get one meal a day. Everybody can do something in life that makes a difference. Come on, give the Lord a good hand today. The message is very simple here. Doing good works don't save us, but save people do good works. How many know we can't do enough good things to get to heaven? Otherwise, the cross is meaningless. The Bible says you're saved by grace through faith. It's a gift of God, not by works. But guess what? When I'm converted and when I'm saved, my life changes. I am not the person I used to be before I became a Christian. And it's not just because I got old. 
How many know there's a lot of old fornicators in the world? I mean, no, there's a lot of old drug dealers in the world. Come on now. I mean, no, there's a lot of older, old people that steal. You don't just have to be young to be wild and crazy and run the streets. But when Jesus changes your heart, life is turned into a better place. Come on, give him another, another hand today. Let me give you another one. It's Matthew 25, again, in line with what Jesus said about the last days. But this is not a, a parable. This is a glimpse into eternity on the day of judgment. Usually when you think of Judgment Day, the great, great White Throne Judgment, you think of the end of the book of Revelation. Well, this is a parallel account. And what Jesus is saying is the way we treat people in need will impact us on Judgment Day. Now, here's another one that we can put into practice. Uh, Matthew 25, say this with me. When, not if the Son of Man comes, but when he comes in his glory, this is King Jesus, he's going to sit on his glorious throne... And listen to verse 32. All the nations will be gathered in his presence. This is a way of saying every person from Adam and Eve to the last person born at the end of time will be gathered before God. And the Bible says he will separate the people as a shepherd separates sheep from goats. Now imagine in this room today if we all stood up and the chairs magically disappeared and somebody went through the room saying, you over here, you on the left, you over here, you're on the right. Sir, you come over here, you should be on the left. No, no, get out of that group, you're on the right. And he manages to get several hundred people in two groups. This is what's going to be happening one day. And the question we should ask ourselves is, how do I get in the right group? Uh, he'll separate the people like a shepherd separates. He'll place the sheep on his right hand. This is where you want to be. And the goats at his left. And then the king will say to those on the right, Come, you blessed by my father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the creation of the world. In other words, heaven, eternity, is not an afterthought. Before Adam and Eve fell, God in his foreknowledge knew he knew that sin would work through a season, through time, and the people that would be followers of Christ for all eternity would not be robots, but would be people who willingly chose him because we can't live without him. Well, so he's prepared this place for us, and he said the strangest thing about who's going to be in that right side. Jesus Christ said, for I was hungry, and you, say it with me, fed me. I was thirsty, and you that's why we dig water wells. I was a stranger and you invited me in your home. I was naked. You gave me clothing. I was sick and you cared for me. I was in prison and you visited me. And the righteous one will reply, Lord, when would we ever see you hungry or thirsty or all the rest of it? And Jesus is going to say, I'll tell you the truth. When you did it to one of the least of these brothers of mine, you were doing it to me. And that's the most incredible thing that I have read in a long time. Scholars interpret this along one of two lines. Some believe when Jesus said, my brothers and sisters, he was talking about the Jewish people. Others believe it was a broad statement to suggest that any needy person that you see in life, you should care for them. Uh, I think we just need to take advantage of both of them. I think we need to help the Jewish people, and I think we need to help people that are in need all around us and all around the world. Kind of cover both. 
We're connected with a ministry in Jerusalem. Uh, they've planted four churches, uh, most of which receive hostility from the government, but they're reaching people for Jesus left and right. Uh, we send 500 a month from your giving to support them. Uh, last month, we sent $13,000 to help them pay for a year for a new church's rent uh, in a brand new city. They're starting a brand new church. So, so we're doing this. They're going, they're not just going to sightsee, they're going to help the people that are there. But guess what? We do things all the time helping people. This is what church is supposed to be about. See, whether it's the clothes. When Linnell showed the, uh, the scripture, uh, not scriptures, but the picture of her lock and Doan trip, and you saw tables of clothes and shoes. See, this is what Christians do. This is not because we want to go to heaven, but because we are going to heaven. It's a way of thanking the Lord, and God is pleased with it. Uh, and you say, well, gosh, I don't, I don't know what I could do. Do you think that this is a, a, a list that's in the examples, or do you think they're, it's a narrow list? I think it's a list of just examples. I think Jesus will include things like a single mom. I think Jesus would say, you helped her while, her while her husband was in prison, and you took those little boys under your wing and showed them how to garden and took them fishing and talked to them about God. See, I think that kind of person will make the list when we get to heaven. It, it, it's not just a narrow list, but it's helping people that are struggling in life. It's the second great commandment, love your neighbor. Let me wrap it up, verse 40. Uh, Jesus will say, uh, I'm sorry, 41. Then Jesus will turn to those on the left side, and you don't want to be there. Jesus says, get away from me. You're cursed into what? Eternal fire, prepared not for people, but for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you didn't feed me. I was thirsty and you didn't give, give me a drink. And he goes through the whole list. And then they said the same thing. When did we ever see you hungry or thirsty? And Jesus said, I tell you the truth, when you refused to help the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you refusing to help me. And then he speaks of an eternity that no one wants to think about. They'll go away into an eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Listen, friends, as I said earlier, good works don't save us, but save people do good works. And some of the greatest good works we can do are helping people that are in need around us as we go to this real place called heaven. Come on, give the Lord a good hand today. He's worthy of praise. For the next two weeks, perhaps three, we're going to take a glimpse into the last days from the book of Revelation. And uh, I, think, uh, I think it will speak to us. I want to close with this. Jesus predicted a bodily resurrection after death for everyone. I want you to think of the cemetery. I guarantee you, you've been to funerals. And when we took, went to that funeral, how many know the guest of honor always stayed? But Jesus is going to say, there's something, there's a change coming. John chapter 5, verse 28, Jesus said, The time is coming when all the dead in their graves will hear the voice of God's Son and they will rise again. In other words, our bodies. The Bible teaches just quickly, we are body, soul, and spirit. When the believer dies, our spirit, our soul, somehow intertwined, go to be with the Lord. The Bible says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. But our body is in the ground, just like Jesus's was, but that body is going to be resurrected one day. Jesus goes on to say, those who have done good 
will rise to experience eternal life. You see, saved people do good things. You're not good to go to heaven, but you do good things, and it's the evidence of your salvation. They're going to eternal life, but those who continue in evil will rise to experience judgment. You say, well, pastor, so <laughs> then how do I experience this resurrection? I'm glad you asked. I'm going to close with this. Everybody's going to live forever. The only question is where. Here's what Jesus said in John 11. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. Now, you need to get excited about this. Anyone who believes in me will live even after dying. Come on now. Anyone. The richest, the poorest, the smartest, the one with the, the lowest IQ. Anyone who simply believes in me will live after they die. It is the great hope that the believer has. And it is grounded not just in pie in the sky. It is grounded in history. It is grounded in archaeology. It is grounded, listen, in the testimony of changed lives. Followers of Jesus are promised to live after they die. And then he said this, as I close, everyone who lives in me and believes in me will live after dying. What does that mean? When I believe in Jesus, I live in him. And the way to determine whether my belief is legitimate and real is am I following Jesus Christ. And friend, I don't know about you, but I want to be a believer in the Son of God that born of a virgin came to this earth, lived a sinless life for one reason, to die on the cross in the payment for my sins. He was dead, buried in the grave a couple days. On the third day, he rose from the dead. He conquered death, hell, and the grave. He's ascend he went up into heaven, ascended at the right hand of the Father, and one day Jesus Christ is coming back again. That's the one that I believe in, and that's the one I'm following, the Lord Jesus Christ. Give him a big hand today. He is worthy of all our praise. That's something to be excited about. Why don't you stand to your feet? We're going we're gonna, to gonna have a little prayer as we go today. I sure am glad you came this morning. But I want to ask you to do something. I want to ask you to forget about spaghetti just a second. Forget about cornbread or Cracker Barrel just a minute. I want to ask you a real serious question. You see, the Bible tells us not just to be a hearer of God's word, but a what? A doer. And I want to ask you, what did the Lord speak to you about today? It's not enough to just hear the Bible. How many know we want to put it into action? We all, when we talked about what the world is like today, we all resonate with the fact that, listen, it sounds like what the Bible was talking about the last days. But how about that parable of the talents? What am I doing? Ask yourself, what am I doing to serve the Lord with my time, my talent, my treasure, my position of influence? Make a res resolve in your heart right now that this week I'm going to serve the Lord. What are you doing to help people in need around you? Now, i got to be honest. When I see people standing on the side of the road, I think the larger percentage of them are not honest. i just be honest with you. I, don't, I, I, I sometimes will, but I rarely help those folks. But I always help the kids from Haiti. I always buy the Bibles. I always help people in benevolence. I'm always helping missionaries. See, there's some things that I know very clearly, and I want it to be a regular part of my life. I want to help people, friend. You can decide right now. Maybe there's someone that God's brought to your mind that you know that you could bring the love of God to. 
You don't have to be a preacher. You don't have to go to Bible school. You simply have to love God and care about people. And God is watching. We're going to close this way. They'll have one last song. I'll invite our prayer team to come to the front. They'll be here to pray for anyone that wants prayer. But one prayer in particular I'd like to pray for is if perhaps you're here and you'll say, Pastor, I don't know if I'd be with the sheep or the goats. I'm not a follower of Christ. I believe, but I've never let that belief cause me to turn and follow Jesus Christ. Friend, this could be to your day today. The wonderful promise of Jesus. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have eternal life. If today you want to receive God's gift of eternal life, we'd be honored to pray with you. It's a very simple prayer we'd like to pray today, but it can change you like it changed me on August 15, 1976, where I took what I learned in Sunday school and I held on to it. And I turned my life to follow Jesus Christ. We'd be honored to pray with you. And if that's you, you want to make a commitment of your life to Christ, I'm going to ask when they start this last song that you just boldly slip out of your chair and come to the cross. I promise you we won't embarrass you. People will clap when they see you coming. They'll rejoice with you as you make the greatest step of your life symbolically away from the world and towards Jesus Christ. Go ahead and begin to sing, Pastor Zach. Our prayer team, they're coming to the front now. Men and women will be here to pray with you about any needs that you may have. Prayer team, slip on up here. And as they're coming to pray here for you, if you want to make a commitment of your life to Jesus, if you want someone to talk with you about eternity in your soul, they'll be at the cross. I love you. Thanks for coming today.